love. Didn't even know I needed it. But I found love. Never even crossed my mind. I found love. Had a garden, never weeded it. But I found love. Took an apple just in time. I found love in the fall. And it did not hurt at all. I found sunlight and flowers, soft summer showers. I can feel my heart touch my Adam's apple. I can feel a feather in my head. There is a lightness, the lightness. Fingers tingle, tootsies tap till dawn comes and finds me never in my bed. Love. Didn't even know I needed it, but I found love. Didn't even cross my mind. I found love in the spring, and I did not lose a thing. I found love in the fall, and it did not hurt at all. I found sunlight and flowers, soft summer showers. I can feel my heart touch my Adam's apple. I can feel a feather in my head. There is a lightness, a lightness. Fingers tingle, tootsies tap till dawn comes and finds me never in my bed. Love, never weeded it, but I found love. Took an apple just in time. I found love in this world, and my heartstrings just unfurled. I found love in the spring, and I did not lose a thing. I found love in the fall, and it did not hurt at all. I found love in this world, and my heartstrings just unfurled. I found love in the spring, and I did not lose a thing. I found love. And I'm going to make an audible because we've got the old reading in there from last week. Um, can we do number 562? Five, 562, a lifelong sharing. And we'll say this all together. Love cannot remain by itself. It has no meaning. Love has to be put into action, and that action is service. Whatever form we are, able or disabled, rich or poor, it is not how much we do, but how much love we put into doing. A lifelong sharing of love with others. Hey. 
That's the first step. So this is the love service, as you've probably guessed <laughs> by now. And uh, it all goes back to Reverend Dawn Sangri. Um, she's our first minister here, and she was in Worship Associates, as I was back about 15 years ago. And she told us, you hear me all right? She told us about a, a service that they had in her church in Mount Kisco. And it was all about love. And uh, she said it was very successful and very ha you know, happy, brought pe made people happy. So uh, I became interested in it. And I started to have it here. This was years ago. <laughs> And I've been doing it ever since. Um, it's amazing how many people we've been through to talk about love. It's been wonderful to get to know a little part of their lives. So today, we have five people. Bill Hart just joined us, so. Uh, oh. Matilda, you can you can do whatever you want if you if you want whatever order you want to go in, or you can sit in the front seat here. Whatever you want to do, uh, I'll just tell you who they are: Matilda, Agar, um, uh, Sonia Lewis, Pam Cook, and Eric Brown, and uh, Bill Hart. Oh, it's exactly the order. <laughs> what? You just use that for the order. That's the order. Uh, there's no order. <laughs> <laughs> you may, you may, you may sit in the front seat and, and order yourself. I'm not going to tell you who's going first <laughs> and who's going second. So it's it's talking about. F oh, you reversed the order. <laughs> uh, so you can sit in the front here, um, and it's all about uh, telling telling about uh, somebody who's affected your life. Um, significantly. So three, four, and Matilda is there. Okay. All right. So that's the the story, and uh, I'll let them tell you what they. Sonia Lewis, and um, thank you for having me. And we're very happy to be, you know, coming to this fellowship or this. Oh, sorry. 
Uh, we're very happy to be coming to this um, church, so thank you for in, in, you know, keeping us happy here. We're very happy here. Um, so I made these little cards. <laughs> it says love service. I want to tell you about two people who always made me feel loved. Both have passed, but had a profound impact on my life. One was a childhood um, friend, and the other was a friend from college. Uh, Lorraine Harris was my campfire uh, leader, and we always called her Mrs. Harris because she was, you know, Mrs. Harris. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know if you know what Campfire Girls is, but it's similar to Girl Scouts. Um, she just lived three houses down from my house in my hometown of Corpus Christi, Texas. Uh, she, Her daughter and I were best friends, Becky and I. Um, she had her meetings at her house, her campfire meetings, once a week. And of course, I was invited more often since we were best friends. I used to go over practically daily, um, you know, it was, it was a refuge for me. Um, I was able to be myself in that house. I was always felt judged uh, at my own home. You know, I was the youngest and I was always not doing things correctly as my mother will attest. Um, but there were no expectations, no judgments, and always lots of love. Um, granted, I had a wonderful family life but I was a very sensitive child and seemed to cry a lot. And I was um, at her house always enveloped in love and literally enveloped. Um, Mrs. Harris was always there to dry my eyes and give me words of advice. And having her in my life made me feel special. And I would always feel grateful to her and her family um, for so many years of unconditional love and support. My second reading is about my best friend who was two years younger than me. Her name was Diane Marie Anger, and if you spell it out, Anger is A-N-G-E-R. So my nickname for her was D-Anger Danger. She was danger to me. Um, so we met at university at the swimming pool. We were both freshmen. I worked at the pool, and she was always beautifully, just a stunningly beautiful woman. I have a photo of her, which I would like to open for you. Um, here she is. <laughs> this is her with her pet guinea pig. I don't know if you can see her. So um, she was born with a medical condition, a couple of different things. She was asthmatic. She had a heart condition that she had five heart surgeries in her lifetime. And she had was born uh, with something called intersex, which back then they called hermaphrodite, which, you know, she had no gender, essentially, um, no sexual organs. And um, she was always very open with me about her condition. She always explained to me what was going on with her. Uh, we spent a lot of time talking about school, talking about boys, and our favorite pastime was bird watching. She was really into bird watching, and it I had been a bird watcher from a child, and so this was one of our favorite things to do. My best recollection of our um, time bird watching was when uh, I went to an island university in Corpus Christi and um, there was an undeveloped part of the university and we went walking and to our surprise as we were just walking around three roseate spoonbills flew over our head so close you felt like you could touch them and it was just a fleeting moment but I will always see that image in my mind of those three beautiful pink birds flying overhead. 
Um, as we got older, uh, we would spend hours on the phone talking about anything and everything. Um, we laughed a lot. When she lived in Florida in 2000, now think back, 2000, I tried my hardest to convince her to vote for Al Gore. Remember that? Um, but she refused to budge because she insisted on voting for her idol, Ralph Nader. <laughs> so I had to get over it. It wasn't you know, her issue. It was my issue, so I had to let it go. Um, I, I'm not even going to mention the number of pets she had, dogs up to five at a time, guinea pigs up to like six or seven at a time, tortoises that she owned, and wild animals like iguanas living in her yard. Um, and we, she just had a lot of um, great photos on her website that I, I always enjoyed watching. She died about three years ago in the favorite place she finally got to live in Belize. So for the last three years of her life, she lived in Belize. I do regret not going to visit her while she lived there. She always had a unique perspective on the world, and I miss her every day. She was my very, very best friend. No one else like her, and may she rest in peace. Thank you. morning. <laughs> um, the first time I did the love service, I talked about my dad, so I figured it's only fitting. Um, today I'm going to talk about my mom and my stepmom. Um, yeah. uh, my mom is truly one of the kindest, most generous, loving people you could ever meet. She tends to enjoy her solitude, preferring to read a book on the couch, spend time in her garden, or work on a sewing project. She was always willing to get down on the floor and uh, play with us when we were little or just snuggle on the couch, and I see her doing the same with Clark now. There is nothing that makes her happier than spending time with her family, and I see her embracing each moment in life, no matter how small. And I'm so grateful she passed this attitude on to me as well. For her, I think this is due to the immense loss she experienced from a young age. At 15, she lost her mom to a long battle with cancer that lasted much of my mom's childhood, and her dad died less than two years later. <clears throat> I can't imagine that level of loss at such a young age, and I'm sometimes surprised by how resilient she is, and hopeful, and cheerful, and always smiling, and seeing the good in people. <clears throat> I think many of us would become angry, and heartbroken, and so enmeshed in grief ex after experiencing such a loss. She is very practical, practical, tends to be a worrier, and not much of a risk taker. Sensitive, stubborn, and patient with little kids. She is and has always been very liberal, setting her apart from much of my extended family. And she's always happy to go to battle in the most well-researched, pragmatic, and relatively calm fashion. At family gatherings, trying to convince any of our family members to come to our side of the fence. So far, she hasn't made much prog progress, <laughs> despite years of trying. But she persists in the hopes that one day, her logic and reason will get through. My mom has always been there to listen, even if I didn't appreciate or want her to. And while she may not agree with the many of the choices I make, she's always willing to give advice and doesn't get upset when I frequently choose to do the opposite. 
When I was about 12, my mom and dad divorced. A painful, emotional divorce that uprooted us all. My dad quickly remarried a woman named Luann, and she was like no one I had ever met. I was used to my mom, calm, loving, sweet, introverted. But Luann was the complete opposite, passionate and fiery, full of energy, loving and emotional, dramatic, wearing her heart on her sleeve at all times. When she married my dad, I was not thrilled. Who was this woman who would sing her heart out day and night, exuberant, lively, theater practice to run to, friends to visit, work to get done, always moving? I was just barely a teenager, emotional, moody, confused and angry, protective of my mom, and unwilling to accept this new brand of motherhood into my life. In one of the earliest photos I have of our new family, we were on our first vacation to Cedar Point. It's a large amusement park that we always loved to go to when I was a kid. And my sister and stepsister were all smiles, obviously mid-laughing fit, having the time of their lives. Meanwhile, I'm staring at the camera with a deadpan stare, attempting not to enjoy the moment. I knew my life is one thing and was unwilling to let any of that change, despite the fact that it was obviously changing without me. I can't imagine how hard it was for Luann to get me to accept her, but somehow it worked most likely through what she and my dad lovingly referred to as forced family fun, which was every Sunday. <laughs> we were forced to play games and hang out together as a family, no one else, and it worked. Um, I don't actually think it took that long, but at the age of 13, everything is agonizing and torturous and feels never ending. But I found I could talk to and ask questions of her and wouldn't feel judged or embarrassed by questions that I definitely wouldn't ask my, my dad and sometimes wouldn't even ask my mom. How did I get so lucky to have two strong, caring, loving, independent women as mother figures, so different from one another, but each showing me different ways of growing into adulthood and how to be a curious and giving human being? I see in myself some of each of their traits and can't imagine my life if they both of them, hadn't been a part of it. My mom's steadfast resolve, her hope and optimism about life, her nurturing and loving commitment to her family, my stepmom's creativity and energy, willingness to be brave and take risks, and love with her whole self. But that's where the difficulty lies. lies. These two women couldn't stand each other. Broken marriages divide people. They're not designed to bring people together or instill warm and cozy feelings. And there was a lot of anger, lack of communication, and resentment that came from my parents' divorce. My sister and I loved being at our mom's house, but we also loved being at our dad and Luann's. Seemingly every minute was a battle, especially around the holidays, with both our mom and dad wanting equal time. While my parents and stepmom were all careful never to badmouth each other, um, we could feel the tension and were frequently go-betweens in the early years, delivering messages from one parent to another. For years, it was a balancing act of making sure we spent equal time at each house every holiday or weekend, poten potentially erupting into jealousy over the extra minutes one family or another received. 
Even into adulthood, I've agonized over splitting up time equally. And I know how lucky I am to have family that I actually want to spend time with. The story gets more complicated when, uh, about 10 years after their marriage, my dad and Luann divorced and my da dad married again. Um, Luann had become an important fixture in my life. So now it was a matter of spending equal time at three different households. I think it was t around that time that I began planning my trips to Michigan via a spreadsheet. <laughs> I wish I were joking, <laughs> but I'm not. <laughs> it's the only way that I could navigate. Um, but over the years, my mom and Luann started loosening up around one another. And Luann would invite me over while we were visiting so we could all spend a bit more time together. Um, it made my sister feel a little less guilty about feeling spread so thin. My sisters and I, my sister and stepsisters, we have taken sisters trips nearly every year since I left for college. Starting off as short camping trips, then becoming longer trips as we moved further apart. We have always looked forward to these trips as times to reconnect and get away from the day to day. We typically stay up way too late, laughing, crying, telling stories of our childhood. We have a collective friendship that I've discovered in adulthood is rare amongst siblings. At a certain point, Luann started joining us on these trips as well. Fast forward to 2013. As we were planning our trip, my sister and I started talking about the idea of inviting my mom on our trip as well. Is this a terrible idea? Probably, definitely. But my mom and Luann both agreed to give it a go. And it wasn't a disaster. <laughs> Four years later, in 2017, we tried it again. Guards were let down, stories were shared. We laughed and talked. Sorry. <laughs> and one evening, over dinner and wine, my mom thanked Luann for being such a loving parent to my sister and I. And Luann thanked my mom for sharing us with her and letting her be part of our lives. There were tears and hugs from all of us as we witnessed it. Through forgiveness, and willing to step outside of their own comfort, an ability to see past old insults and pain, they formed a new friendship. That is love. I'm grateful for it. Thank you. Sorry for the tears. Good morning, can you hear me? Okay, great. Oh, that was beautiful. I'm Matilda, for those of you who may not know. And I want to begin by thanking you, Dorothy, for the opportunity to share uh, precious memories of a loved one. Um, it's my Aunt Katie. Uh, she was one of my father's older sisters, and really, Katie was one of the best gifts of my life ever. She was born in Brooklyn to Italian immigrant parents, Matilda, who I was named after, and Santo. It was 1915 during the First World War. 
She lost her mom when she was just seven years old. And she lived through the Great Depression and the Second World War. During that war, she married. And shortly after they married, my Uncle Pat was called to the service. And gratefully, he did return from the war. And he worked very hard to earn his, his living. Um, but his e income was very meager. And they grew up quite poor. Their life was poor to begin and continued to be so. Um, Aunt Katie was a very simple woman. She embraced an extraordinary love of God and her Catholic faith. This love poured through her every word and action with an expansive, generous warmth that shone through to the entire family. If anyone was ill or in need of any kind of help, Aunt Katie would be right there. You wouldn't even have to ask. She would just show up. When I was a, a kid, um, every Christmas, every year at Christmas, my father's siblings, Katie, Jenny, and Louie, <laughs> uh, would arrive at our house on Staten Island with their, with their spouses, my two cousins. Of, of those, um, only my father had, we, we were five kids, and um, um, my uncle Louie had two, but the two sisters never had children of their own. Uh, and they would bring their guitars and ukuleles and song sheets. <laughs> so my oldest and fondest memories of Aunt Katie are of sitting on her lap as they jammed together for hours on end, singing carols, old-time favorite Italian songs, and the pop songs of the day. And then um, when I was little, Aunt Katie would put me put her guitar aside, she would take me off her lap and stand up, and then she would help me put my feet on top of her feet, hold my hands, and dance with me. Those were some of the most delightful memories and moments of my life. We would just laugh, dance, and sing our hearts out. It was just uh, lovely. So those moments are utterly etched into my memory. I think of them like as a moving, living painting. <laughs> It brought the young me so much joy, and it is that very spark of joy that I feel here at the UU since the very first day I came here and sang with our wonderful musicians. Can't tell you how much I love it. <laughs> and it is among the experiences that continue to bring me back here week after week. It is among them, not the only one. <laughs> so thank you very much. During the summers of my school age years, Aunt Katie would bring me home with her for a week or more at a time. She never did have children of her own, and I, being the oldest and only girl of what would become five kids, I would feel like a princess for a week. <laughs> she would dress me up, curl my hair, which was then poker straight. I don't know what happened when I turned 60, my hair curled up. <laughs> Take me to the beach at Coney Island, Bay 10 to be exact. For those of you who know Coney Island, the Brooklyn Botanical Gardens was just around the corner from where she lived or out to a movie. And when I was in my early teens, she brought me to the very first live band concert of my life with Duke Ellington Yay. performing at the Forest Hill Stadium in Queens. I'll never forget it. <laughs> 
I was so excited. <laughs> After I married and I had my own kids, I didn't see her quite so much. But the family ritual of gathering for the holidays and summer visits with, at my parents' house persisted. And I was always sure that I would be there with my kids and my, when I had a partner who was my partner. <laughs> During the last five years of her life, Anne Katie came to live in the newly opened senior apartments over at Shrub Oak, for those of you who, who know it, a couple of blocks from where I live. She was enthralled. She was so happy with that apartment. Nobody had ever lived in it before. It was spanking brand new. And, and that nobody had, but anyone else but her had lived in that apartment. She was absolutely in her glory because she was, she was such a clean, oh my God, everything was like perfect. <laughs> I would stop by to see her a few times a week and just as she had done in all the years past, she opened the door and joyfully greeted me, calling me by my family nickname and I'm going to tell you what it was. <laughs> Cookie, she would go, <laughs> as if she hadn't seen me in a decade. Every single time, it was amazing. I, I entered to big hugs and kisses as if I were the crown princess once more, honoring her with my visit. So she was a delight in my life, such a delight. I don't know what to, made me do this. But it was early in May 2005, about three weeks before Aunt Katie's 90th birthday. We had a lovely family celebration in her honor at my home. And she was so happy and delighted to be surrounded by her nieces and nephews. All her sibs were gone by then. She was the only, she was the last one to leave us. And here is a photo of taken on her of that day. And I don't know if you can see it, but just love pouring out of her eyes. I don't know if you can see that. She was looking at me with this, this glow of love in her eyes. It was so beautiful. It's so beautiful. I'll, ne I'll never forget it. On May 26th, which was her birthday, um, I arranged a simple little celebration for her, uh, inviting her neighbors uh, on the floor where she lived over in Shrub Oak. And um, these they were all ladies. They were all women. There were no men on that floor. It's very interesting. Um, they had conspired together when, just shortly after they, they, they moved in. They furnished the foyer around the second floor stairwell where they could meet and socialize with each other. It was really, really sweet. So they had little chairs and sofas and doilies and they would sip their coffee there and chat. So I set up um, a little spread for her Oh, there, uh, a few hors d'oeuvres, some beverages, a birthday cake, and some music. And we had barely gotten to sing happy birthday to Aunt Katie, and she was starting to open her gift gifts when she, she turned to me and she said she wasn't feeling at all well. 
and she very apologetically asked to go back to her apartment. So I took her back, helped her with her nighttime ritual, tucked her into bed, and she insisted that she was okay and that I should leave and go home. Well, by the next morning early, she called me to tell me that her skin was in unbearable pain and she could not put on her clothing. She couldn't tolerate any, the touch of anything. It was in her, I was with her very quickly because I really lived very, very close, like two, three blocks, and realized she needed to go to the hospital, so I called an ambulance. And it was the last time that she was ever in her immaculate, neat, modestly furnished dream apartment. The shingles never resolved. It was shingles. She went in and out of the hospitals and nursing homes throughout the entire summer. I was with her on October 2nd after she had been subject to multiple falls. She had been refusing to eat by then and she was bedbound. I found an audio tape of the Mysteries of the Rosary that I set up at her bedside. I knew hearing them would be a great comfort to her. I held her hand and was speaking gently to her and I realized she had stopped breathing. I took her in my arms and as I did so, the last of her breaths pushed out of her. I kept my arms around her and now I was crying. And I continued to speak with her to her ear for many minutes. Nobody else was around, nobody was there. And then, I don't know, several minutes later, the nurse came into the room, and then, of course, all the procedures had to happen. Uh, she was the only person in my life who died in my arms. From my infancy to Ann Katie's death, she taught me what it means to love and to be truly and deeply loved. And for that, I am forever grateful. Thanks to uh, Matilda and Sonia and Pam and Bill for deciding to go last. Thanks, Bill. Appreciate it. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. And so here we are again. I stand here as a testament to the persuasive power of Dorothy Bauman. Uh, what I mean by that is that she approaches and I say, yes, 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 of course, of course. And then I go, wait, what do you need? I'm blessed or fortunate enough to likely to have had a life where I could supply a healthy amount of distinct stories for a service surrounding love. My parents married in 1973 and seem to this day still to need no other friends outside of each other. 
They both came from families deeply rooted in love and dedication to each other and their communities. I grew up steeped in this with all the lessons one needs to step into the world, except maybe how to be cool or any skills at dating, about which my parents could care less. My parents taught me to be inquisitive, gave me a foundation of confidence and expectation of working hard and giving my all to something without ever the sense that this was anything other than normal, because at the bottom of all this was an exacting and unconditional love. I've been blessed with lifelong friends, a handful of teachers who cared and believed in me. My mom was one of them. I've been blessed with godparents who loved me and actually cared if I was cool or had any skills at dating. And I have a handful of talents that I was taught to share. And on a fateful day, election night 2004, I was smart enough to say yes when a lovely, talented, and caring woman was dumb enough to ask me if we should start dating. I sometimes am envious of people with less mundane trials and epic stories of risk or fraught relationships, but even in this I know that I'm fortunate and privileged and that I should be grateful. None of this is the tale of love I have to tell. Perhaps there'll be stories for another day if Dorothy ever catches me again, which will probably not happen. But they are the backstory for my subject. Religion for me was a family endeavor. A pastor, uncle, aunt who was a choir director who will likely one day get a story of her own, if again Dorothy ever catches me, which she will not, uh, who made me start playing in church. My uh, mom was lead usher for a time and my dad was the assistant pastor. So I saw firsthand the power of religion and all of its foibles. And this gives a lot, but it requires much. And so taking a break from that meant for me Maybe a handful of church visits in the two decades after leaving home for college. Why in God's name would I put up with that foolishness from anyone other than my family? What about brunch? Was my favorite reply when I was asked about church. Went to a Bible Way church, a Baptist church once, Unitarian church in Brooklyn, and then St. Patrick's because my mom wanted to see it. I could literally count them on one hand. I typically found God more in walks in the woods than I ever have in a sanctuary, and that's pretty much held true. Then one day, a gentle voice Kentuckian named Paul Lansdale and I were swapping stories about growing up in southern churches and how we both had, and how he started going to a place where light poured into the small room and a group of well-intended folk came together to explore the what's and how's the spirituality's role in their lives. How do we create a better world for ourselves and each other? As a cynic, I'd love to say that I didn't believe him, but Paul's sincerity is tough to counter, so walking through that front door back there, it confirmed what he knew and what I had already believed. Each sermon those first few months seemed to be tailor-made for me. I felt a tap on the shoulder that I hadn't felt in 20 years that said, okay, you can get brunch after service. It's like Sunday school. They talk to the minister after the service. They, they have sermons about social justice and Shostakovich and Thoreau. Jesus, they break for the summer. This is what I would tell people. <laughs> More than that, though, this place, this community, and the people who make it are as much the light as the sun through those windows. My partner and I and my child seem secure here. I feel like I hear the still small voice that I needed and couldn't find anywhere else. I mean, I only tried five times, but still, I found it here. That's what you should focus on. A friend once said that she was grateful for this place 
because there's a space for vulnerability, exploration, and sharing truths. I wholeheartedly agree. It's a place where giving what I have in full measure from the handful of talents that I have is a task that's a cheerful one. It's a place where folks stand before each other once a year on a Sunday morning sharing tales about the love in their lives and it seems like the most normal thing in the world. Thank you. Hi, I'm Bill Hart. I'm going to keep this as short as I possibly can because of time. It would be very easy to kind of digress in little paths, different directions. So to keep it in this narrow little slot that I want to explain to you is more of a challenge than you might think. It's about my parents. My father's name is Yule Hod Hart, and my mother was Carrie Cecile Willis. They were married for 13 years before Billy came along. Um, my experience as a child, up to maybe eight, was very happy. Um, after that, because of my mother's illnesses, many of them involving nervous breakdowns, more than one, mental illnesses, thyroid problems, and so forth, her life was very unhappy. It affected me in some ways, I'm sure. And my father was a personality that said very little. He was very quiet. Sentences like, yup, was complete. <laughs> now, I'll stop the diversion and try to focus on what I thought I would do this morning. I recently discovered two little wooden boxes about this long, this high with a little lid, and in the boxes were negatives. My father's photography work, or at least some of it, he had done photography for years as a hobby. Those of you that know me, I do photography professionally. So there was something that transferred in there, you know. But in these boxes were odd-sized and shaped negatives. They were from two-and-a-quarter cameras, cameras that used 620 film, if you recall those, if you're old enough to recall those. The negatives were larger than what we're used to with 35. And they were of topics that were new to me. It was like stepping into a, a, a magical world of history of my parents that I never knew. It was when they were dating, when they were in high school, after high school, when they got married, prior me. It was like looking into their secrets. He had made photographs of my mom before her various illnesses, and the two of them together uh, being very happy. Pictures of her looking more like a model than I ever thought possible. She was very attractive until the illnesses and then her life changed and the way that she approached everything changed as well. But these negatives were, are so precious to me now and I'm beginning to reprint them, which makes them even more alive and become history of my history. Let me share with you one more thing and I'll get out of your hair. We were very poor. We had a very small house. There was like four rooms and a bath. 
and the bath was bathroom was very, very small. But he had managed to make it into a dark room when no one else was using it for its intended purposes. He had made an enlarger using parts from cameras. He had um, set up, he would set up a board across the sink, the small sink that was in the bathroom. And on that board, there'd be three trays, developer, hypo, wash. And then he would continue washing those prints in the bathtub on the opposite side of the bathroom. All of this after my mother had gone to bed. How she put up with this, I think, was a testament to her love for him and her patience for him. I can't think of too many women that wouldn't put up with it, <laughs> but she did. And he produced his photography at night when I was asleep and she was asleep. In the morning, we would find, my mother and I would find, the prints being dried against chrome plates that were leaning against the wall. And as they dried, they would curl and fall to the floor. And um, I remember <laughs> you know, picking up these various photographs that he had made, at that time not paying too much attention to their content. But I'm so blessed with the love that's coming from these prints that I'm now discovering. It's like they are sharing this with me out of the mist, you know. So that's my story of love from my parents. I want to thank Bill, Eric, Pam, Sonia, Matilda, and especially Dorothy for pulling this all together. We have a hymn. We'll have a hymn, and then we'll have congregational share. It's number 95.